Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. We are recognizing that even as we seek to apply the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day, um, and we we take on what seem like really global concerns, um, every single one of the things that we talk about is ultimately a local issue somewhere to someone. And I want to be mindful of that this morning because I I, I was reminded yesterday that um, some people feel very disconnected from news when we're going to talk about Syria or we're going to talk about China. Um, And here's what I want us to be mindful of as we discuss these things. Every single one of these stories is a local story to the people who live in that place. Every single one of these stories is about individuals and families and kids and classrooms and social disruption in places where people are just trying to get through the day. They're just trying to make a way in the world. Um, And so as we pray today for our neighbors in California, who now, in addition to um, struggling against wildfires, have no power in their houses, um, their gas lines and their power lines have been cut off intentionally in order to avoid the kind of uh, feeding of the fire that took place in Northern California um, when power lines fell into, you know, brittle forest. And so let's be let's be praying for folks who rely on, um, let's say, medical devices that require power. Like, right. I mean, there's just all kinds of considerations um, that are they seem regional, at least, or they seem national or they seem global, but ultimately they're local. And I want us to be mindful of that. And so, you know, when you read a story today, let's say about prayer lockers in Kentucky that, you know, somebody thinks that, wow, these kids shouldn't have a prayer locker available to them where they can write little sli- write their prayers on little slips of paper and slide them in through the slots of the prayer locker. And someone will, you know, a, a very, very quietly, I mean, an administrator is unlocking that locker and collecting all of those prayers and teachers who want to are praying for those kids. Well, apparently, you know, there's somebody out there who thinks that's a violation somehow of somebody's rights instead of recognizing that kids have real concerns and they need a way to share those concerns with somebody who's going to care and pray for them. Um, and so it's all it's all ultimately local. We talk about these national religious liberty concerns. We're talking about kids in elementary school in Kentucky who are writing their prayers on little slips of paper and sliding them into a prayer locker that now... Uh, somebody thinks should be removed because it's a violation of someone else's um, rights. Okay, so in terms of everything being local, here locally in my life today, today is the birthday of Jim LaBerge. He is my fabulous, wonderful husband. Um, He's my tender, tender of trees. He's an arborist. Um, He is a man who is totally after God's own heart, um, he's an author. I've never had him on to talk about his book. Maybe we should do that. 
Um, and so here's uh, here's just my happy birthday um, shout out in the most local of terms uh, in, in terms of my life to my husband today. So um, beloved Jim, one who is fearfully and wonderfully made, you are gifted and you are a gift and happy birthday. Next up, we're going to turn to issues in Syria and remembering that for the people who live in northeastern Syria, these issues are intensely local. Drew Griffin will be here when we come back. Joining me now, Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. Um, Drew is going to help us hopefully sort through uh, and sift out this story related to what is happening in northeastern, extreme northeastern Syria on the border with Turkey, where the United States military has been um, a a small presence, um, an advisory presence, helping, assisting, coming alongside the Kurds in that region, as they, uh, along with us and others, have been combating ISIS now for many, many years. So there are uh, many former ISIS fighters detained in this region, in this area. Um, and the president of the United States announced on Sunday night a massive shift in uh, in U.S. military policy related to this region. And here to talk about that is Drew Griffin. Welcome, my friend. Uh, hello, Carmen. Welcome. Or, hey, good morning. <laughs> no, that's okay. You can welcome me as well. I like that. It's mutual. Yep. Um, okay, so take us into this story at whatever point you want to start unpacking it, because it just seems to me that there's a there's a very tangled web of conversations that we could have. So just start anywhere you want, and then we'll sort through some things. Sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I think it's important uh, to kind of lay out the players. There, there are a number of different um, entities here that we need to kind of uh, identify to try and uh, define what exactly uh, what the problem is, right? Where uh, the, the controversy surrounding Trump's uh, President Trump's decision. So we're we're talking about um, Kurds that live in northeast Syria. So Kurds are an ethnic group. Uh, that there are about 25 to 30 million spread around um, the the Middle East. They're in northern Iraq. They're in uh, southeastern Turkey. They're in northeastern Syria. And they're an indigenous group that has, as uh, the political borders have been drawn over the last 100 years, uh, have been kind of carved out and segmented, some in Syria, some in Iraq, some in Turkey. And uh, they kind of are a people without a home. And uh, but they are a, um, a relatively unified group of people in each of these different areas in Iraq and in Turkey and in Syria. They, they coalesce and they gather together and um, uh, form kind of uh, cohesive um, uh, ethnic groups. And they're in uh, Syria and they have about seven to 10 percent of the Syrian population. Uh, the Kurds have uh, the uh, People's Protective Unit, which is kind of their armed kind of military force there in northeastern Syria that uh, helps protect uh, the, the Kurdish people. And so when ISIS, right, which is the Islamic State in the um, in Syria, um, you know, moved out of Iraq and headed into Syria and began to kind of take over and try and form a geographic caliphate, 
the Kurds in eastern Syria um, during the Syrian civil war uh, were really the the buffer, were really the the uh, force that the United States partnered with to help stamp out ISIS in in eastern Syria. And um, we we worked with them. We partnered with the Kurds to to um, stamp out ISIS. They they took retook Syrian villages. Uh, and they successfully kind of stamped out this geographic kind of political entity of of ISIS. Uh, they captured, like you said, a number of troops. They hold um, tens of thousands of ISIS troops in um, and and camps. And um, but uh, the other player in this situation is Turkey. Um, Turkey has had a, a contentious relationship with the Kurds really since the founding of the the Turkish state in the early twentieth uh, century, following World War One. And um, they are Kurds are constantly kind of a, um, a a burr under the saddle, if you will, of of uh, a Turkey and especially um, Recep Erdogan, uh, Turkey's president. And so um, he, they view them as a threat. Uh, to Turkish authority. Uh, they have resisted all urges for uh, any kind of like Kurdish autonomy or, or freedom or any kind of uh, um, uh, liberation, you know, for the for the Kurdish people. They, they view them as, as a threat. And so this this armed group of Kurdish, uh, you know, militants that exist there in, in northern Syria are a particular threat that Turkey feels um, uh, to Turkish sovereignty and to just Turkey, uh, Turkish uh, legitimacy and power in the region. And so um, Erdogan has uh, a desire to uh, push back uh, these Kurdish troops and, and eliminate what he views as a threat. Um, the United States has had uh, troops there with um, the Kurds and had a military presence there. Um, and that the American presence, presence has really been the, um, uh, you know, uh, what you'd say, the, the buffer, the the calming influence in the region uh, that has kept Turkey from uh, instigating any kind of pushback against the Kurds. Uh, and what has been a surprise, Trump said, all right, we're removing now our, you know, our presence. Turkey can basically, uh, I mean, do what it needs to do or do what they say they're going to do, which is in, basically invade uh, northern um, uh, northeast Syria and uh, push the Kurds back. There are a number of problems with this. Um, and it is is met with wide criticism. One, and first and foremost, I guess, is that you know the Kurds are our allies. Uh, they have been our allies in northern Iraq uh, after the Iraqi War. They've been our allies uh, in the fight against ISIS, and um, you know they are a people. They're 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 not going anywhere. Uh, and so it is, you know, it's we're in essence kind of turning our back on and, we're, you know, on these uh, people that we have uh, worked with and partnered with over the last 10 to 15 years and basically um, delivering them into the hands of um, a hostile Turkish regime. So it's it's a bad thing for the Kurds. Um, it's uh, potentially a bad thing because there are uh, ISIS is still very much a presence uh, in North Eastern Syria, even though they're not a kind of political entity of ISIS, uh, there are still thousands and thousands of ISIS fighters um, that if the United States is not present and is not uh, bolstering uh, the Kurds, and if the Kurds have to start uh, turning their attention to uh, rebuff uh, Turkey, uh, these ISIS fighters will begin to take um, land again. They will begin to take. It's already the reports are already coming in from northeast Syria that there are ISIS fighters that, be, that are beginning to uh, attack uh, Syrian towns and try and take those towns back. 
Um, there are tens of thousands of ISIS troops that are under um, uh, Kurdish guard, that now there is no mechanism to transfer them over to Turkish control. So what are they going to happen to those uh, prisoners? Um, and then we have to be mindful of the number of Christians and Yazidis and other uh, minorities that are under kind of this this um, uh, Kurdish-controlled uh, area that are now, you know, uh, not only having to uh, uh, handle the instability of ISIS and the threat from there, but now potential threat from um, a Turkish regime, which is hostile to Christianity, extremely hostile to Christianity. So all in all, it is a... Um, uh, a controversial decision and one that I think uh, Christians especially uh, should be concerned about and, and prayerful about. So, Drew, before we pivot to really uh, additional issues in Iraq, let me just assure our listeners, this is actually not a blue or a red issue uh, in terms of United States uh, politics or people who are participating in this conversation. Um, everybody from Pat Robertson to Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, are condemning this uh, move by the president, very unilateral move by the president, a, a move that is not supported by any of his uh, advisors in terms of, of the military, in terms of the intelligence community. Um, Senator Lindsey Graham has said in an interview last night, none of Trump's key national security advisors uh, or cabinet officials supported the announced withdrawal from northern Syria. Uh, quote, the president's doing this completely against everybody else's advice. Um, Graham said that he first learned of this decision in a 6 a.m. Monday morning phone call when somebody simply said, You're, you won't believe what just happened. Um, and so I think that, Drew, as we approach this conversation, you and I need to be quick to say this is not um, this is not a partisan issue. This is about uh, real people living in a real place where we have been engaged and involved um, and if we withdraw, as we withdraw, we are already seeing the region blow up. Um, in addition to uh, Turkey making moves there on its own uh, border with Syria in this northeastern region, uh, the Turks have now bombed the um, uh, the Syrian border with Iraq in order to prevent the Kurds from reinforcing um, themselves in uh, in northeastern Syria. So the 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 place is literally um, now just 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 on fire. OK, we're going to pivot across uh, Syria from Turkey, the Turkish border in, into Iraq, because Iraq is has also become inflamed in the last seven days. And we now have reports of more than 100 people uh, killed there. So we're going to pivot to Iraq in just a moment. We're talking with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow him at DG underscore NYC or at ProvMag. Prov, oh, do I have that right? What's the Twitter at, follow at, for Providence? <laughs> yeah, it's at um, uh, Prov Magazine. Yeah, at Prov Magazine. All right, we'll be right back. Returning to my conversation now with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow him. Uh, on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. You can follow Providence Magazine at Prov Magazine. Um, Drew, uh, let's pivot toward uh, Iraq. I understand that maybe there has been a day of, of relative peace, but for people who have not been uh, paying attention to what's happening, what's been going on for the last week and what are some of the numbers we're looking at now? 
So, yes, uh, the, the situation in Iraq is um, uh, worsening in that uh, there have been a number of protests over the last week, really, that Iraqis are um, uh, fed up. Uh, so after uh, two years of uh, after defeating the Islamic State, after a couple of, uh, you know, U.S. invasions, uh, U.N. sanctions, um, uh, they are in a, uh, a crisis because they're um, they're free to trade uh, with uh, the world really for the first time since the 1970s. Their oil output is uh, at record levels. Um, there has been relative, you know, kind of uh, peace and quiet since they defeated ISIS. Uh, and yet you've got, you know, 40 million Iraqis that are um, uh, buckling under the weight of uh, uh, massive corruption, uh, a um, destroyed infrastructure that has not been um, uh, deteriorating infrastructure that's not been rebuilt since uh, many of the wars. And uh, there, there's very little in terms of jobs or kind of economic um, uh, development. And so uh, what you're seeing is the Iraqi people beginning to kind of take to the streets and say, you know, we're, we're tired of this corruption. We are tired of our leaders taking advantage of us. We're, you know, uh, we are uh, fed up with uh, this um, uh, lack of opportunity. And the government has come back and said, well, look, we'll, we'll promise, you know, more employment. Uh, we'll try and um, uh, improve health care and electricity. I mean, we'll, we'll try and do what we can. But there is uh, um, uh, I think it's it's reaching a level in which the the dis dissatisfaction on the part of the Iraqi people is is beginning to um, you know when people don't feel like they have a voice uh, they stop using their voice and they stop using they start using other means they start protesting they start uh, um, uh, clashing and so I, I think that this is a um, not necessarily a, a a bad situation in in terms of the fact although it's it's horrendous that people are losing their lives and I would never want that. Um, that's, uh, I think it's right for the Iraqi people to begin to um, uh, demand of their government that uh, a certain level of competency and um, to push against um, uh, corruption. And so um, it's, uh, but what we have to be concerned about and, and you know, peripheral about is just the uh, potential instability there um, that uh, these protests are creating. And uh, unfortunately, the, the, uh, losses of life that are um, uh, occurring as a result. So uh, I, I know that there are people listening who are thinking to themselves, um, we invested so much in this region. Is exporting democracy this hard? And I think the answer is yes. I think that mm -hmm. um, that when democracies are new, when they're nascent, it takes a while for um, the right group of people to uh, be be established and the right systems to be put in place in order that infrastructure and and opportunity and and then capitalism can can flourish um, and I think we need to be mindful of that that this is building a democracy is messy it was here and it is elsewhere the difference is we're seeing we're seeing these democracies attempt to develop in real time and we have eyes on these situations and they're real you know, for the people involved. And so, yeah, thanks for bringing us that. Hey, let me um, direct people to this latest Provcast, Provcast episode 43. You can find it at ProvidenceMag.com. Um, and it's, is civility dead in America? And it's a conversation with Paul Miller. It's just excellent. So, Drew, thank you. Um, thank you for that conversation. Let me direct people there to ProvidenceMag.com and grab Provcast episode 43 on civility. Really excellent. We look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Carmen. All right, friends, we'll be right back. <laughs> 
emanation of affection. Uh, this is not just about uh, a relationship growing cold. This is about a third party uh, asserting itself into someone's marriage and causing the alienation of affection. There are actually a handful of states that have alienation of affection laws on the books. And alienation of affection cases are rising across the country as believers in particular, Christians in particular, are seeking to defend the sanctity of their marriages against those who would purposely, purposefully interfere with the marital relationship and ultimately break up the marriage. So there has been a, a, a case just decided in North Carolina um, where the uh, plaintiff has been awarded a $750,000 judgment against the man who who caused the uh, caused his wife to leave I mean essentially so uh, you break up somebody's marriage it may not just cost you your marriage it may actually cost you and that's the conversation we're going to have next with Peter Kapsner in our 50 shades of truth segment this week that's up next you're on mornings with Carmen have you ever asked someone how they're doing and they holler busy as they run by I know I catch myself saying that a lot. And the truth is, I am busy. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, it's pretty much a given that no one has a lot of free time these days. Family, work, friends, errands, housework. It just never seems to end. And if your schedule is like mine, there aren't many open spaces. But are you filling your time with things that matter, that bring you joy and serve God? Look at your calendar or your to-do list. If you're doing things that don't align with your faith, consider tossing them from your life. Use your time wisely to live your life's calling, whatever that may be. Try to lighten your load and focus on what matters. When you do, you'll be less busy and more confident, content, and generous. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Joining me today in studio, he's in studio, I am not, uh, is Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, man. Hey, great to be with you as always, Carmen. I love to give people like, you know, a social media follower somewhere they can find someone, but you yeah. are not on social media, which is fine. But uh, <laughs> then I just have to introduce you as, you know, professor, friend, colleague, Member of the press, Peter Capster. I am. I am. I am working on my social media profile right now. But Carmen, that sounded like a fine. That was sort of like a Christian fine, like more of a passive aggressive. I don't approve of it. Fine. <laughs> I'm going to introduce you today as Haley's husband. Oh, that's perfect. Okay? Uh, that happened because, to me just the other day. It was all, just outstanding. So, so talking with me today is Peter Capster, Haley's husband, and I love we're going to talk about this story. Um, we're, I'm reading the, uh, from the one out of North of North Carolina, but actually there are several out there. Um, these alienation of affection cases across the country, judgments against people who are regarded as homewreckers, the third party who somehow inserted uh, ordinarily himself into an otherwise, quote unquote, happy marriage. These are all things we can discuss, by the way. I'm just uh, I'm just laying it out here. Right. Um, this uh, this third party who supposedly inserted uh, himself into an otherwise happy marriage drew the affection of the wife away from the husband, and the husband then sues 
the third party individual after the divorce um, basically for causing it. Let's just talk about some of these issues, the sanctity of marriage, the alienation of affection, the fact that these laws are based on uh, property claims. Like, just roam around in, in this with us. Yeah, I think that's the point, Carmen, is when I when I first saw the headline, I thought, well, interesting that somebody wants to protect the sanctity of marriage. And, and I think there's a dimension of that for you and I to chat about. But I think it's also good to get a sort of a clear-eyed look at this, that the original intention of the law was based in some sort of English tort law where the wife was viewed as property. So in the context of a homewrecker, it's not so much somebody breaking up a loving relationship, at least initially according to the law, it was that the wife was seen as property, just sort of actual physical property like a house or a car or a pet or something like that of the husband. So for somebody to come in and insert themselves into the relationship in such a way as to draw the wife uh, away, it was sort of roughly akin to almost like property theft, as it were. And so then on that basis, the alienated husband was entitled to some measure of financial compensation. So that's the basis of the law. Now, most states in the United States have repealed that law and it's no longer on the books. But there is, as you said, a handful of states that have kept that law and even changed it a bit to reinterpret it. Uh, related to what you've described as alienation of affection, where now it is about somebody breaking up a relationship. So it was originally based on property. Now it is about uh, breaking up the relationship. Pretty tough to determine financial damage in that. But to your point, I think what it invites us to talk about is the seriousness of seeing a marriage break up. And in this case, the husband was, in his mind, happily married. And he and his wife were going through a difficult marital situation, which I can't think of any marriage that where people have been married for an extended period of time where they don't go through difficult situations. It's sort of part and parcel to the long-term journey together. And they were going to get marital counseling to try to sort of fix the relationship. And when they were in counseling, the husband recognized something was off. And so he hired a private investigator to try to figure out what might be going on. And it turns out, of course, that there was this third person involved and uh, drawing the wife away from any sort of hope of reconciliation. Now, she is a complicit party in this, too, of course. It's not just him, but in in the midst of this situation, the alienated husband sued and won $750,000 judgment. And uh, this is not the only case like this. There's five more pending. Uh, One attorney says she sees about one every year along these lines. And it's a really interesting law in the books that I think would invite us to talk with our kids, would invite us to talk with other people just about what marriage is supposed to be and how easily it can be broken up and how serious it is when that happens. I'm remembering the conversation that we had uh, here with Sue Sire, who um, who recently wrote the book from from Genesis to Revelation, God Takes a Bride, uh, and I'm I'm just recalling how many places in Scripture the the marital relationship here on earth is intended. It's intended to help us see. It's a it's an image of an eternal reality, the relationship of Christ and the Church, and and I'm and so I immediately thought about Revelation two four where you know, Jesus is actually saying to the church, you know, this is what I hold against you. You abandon your first love. Yep. Like this alienation of affection, the way in which the world finds its way as an enemy of God into the marital relationship um, to mar the image of something here on earth that God has given us that we are supposed to be uh, allowing to be used as a as a foretaste, as a foreshadowing of an eternal reality in heaven. So I do think there are opportunities for Christians to have very real conversations um, around the subject of the sanctity of marriage, around the subject of affection, 
and the alienation of affection and how that actually happens, that the enemy is interested in breaking up marriages um, because of what they really are, not because of what we imagine that they are, but because of what they really are, these images here on earth in in real time of an eternal reality. And yeah. so, I don't know, you want to wander around in that for well, a minute? Well, I think what you just pointed out is so important, Carmen, uh, and there's so many different dimensions of it. One is that there is a, a spiritual attack, I think can be safely said, about mar- uh, just sort of somebody wanting to break up the marriage because of what it's meant to model here on earth. And I think there's a couple things we can say about this. One is I would be hesitant to be, um, t- you know, applaud too much one of these laws on an external basis that's trying to govern a marriage because the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is mm. that external laws don't necessarily change the human heart. They might create some boundaries, but uh, but they don't change the way we're supposed to be. So I'd be a little bit careful in applauding an external law to govern behavior. But I think the second part, and it's what I think was underpinning what you were saying, when we think about God and his bride and how that is a picture of the relationship between the husband and the li- a wife, one of the dimensions of love in the biblical text is this Hebrew word uh, hesed, and, it, and it's a love. It is a, I will never leave you nor forsake you kind of love. It's the love that Ruth showed to Naomi when she decided to leave Moab and head back into the promised land with Naomi. I will never leave you nor forsake you kind of love. And that is something that is, I think, increasingly lost. When, when we get married for convenient reasons, when we get married because we believe our personality profiles show that we're going to have a wonderful journey of a companion with a companion for a lifetime, like all the reasons we get married, as opposed to saying, hang on, I am going to uh, be your companion for a lifetime with a hesed love that regardless of how th- hard things get, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You need both partners saying that, of course, but that is the kind of love God shows his bride. He says, I have hesed love for you. I will always pursue you. I will never break the vow between us and that. And I think that's where some of our invitations are. I just, uh, I, it's heartbreaking, right? It, it should be heartbreaking when we read in the news about the destruction of anyone's marriage. Um, and And then as soon as I say that, Peter, I recognize that there are people living in very unhappy marriages. Yeah, that's what's been on my heart too, yeah. Can you talk about feeding the affection of your own marriage? Like there's this responsibility once we are married to actually feed the affection of the marriage. Yeah, you don't, you know, how you feel at the age of 19, 20, 21, 22, whenever it is you get married. 41. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 41 or 42. Yeah. yeah, This is. This is not an aged age. age. (laughs) (laughs) That's very fair. And and most of us, you know, when we get married, it's almost always because we feel a certain way about somebody at a certain time. But, you know, that begins to moderate uh, over time as well. And so how do you continue to feed it? Uh, Is it possible to still get butterflies around your spouse 15, 20, 25 years in? Well, that's not just going to happen on its own. You do need to, like anything else in life, intentionally pursue that relationship, to be honest when things are difficult uh, right in the beginning. I, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary, and we're, we're talking about uh, this with the pastors that married us. And, and he said, and, and she said, that, and they're married about 50 years now, and they said the key really is to this, is that just stop all of the sort of 
discord right in its tracks when it first happens. If you want to have an affectionate marriage, don't let the little things get in between you that do when you just live with somebody day in and day out. I mean, there isn't anybody that I think could live with me day in and day out that wouldn't get annoyed at least twice a day. And and so how do we, yeah, then Carmen and studio, they're all agreeing uh, here at this point. <laughs> but the, the point of that is, is it, you let those things fester, right? You let a little seed begin to grow and that yeast begins to leaven the whole bread. And so you do have to be proactive in continuing with the sort of affection between the two of you and ask God to be right in the midst of it with you. Yeah, and you can't and you can't also try to change that other person. You, you just can't. have to entrust yeah. that God is going to do uh, in them, with them and through them what he wants. And that's what you have to be praying for and applauding when it is, you know, is happening and uh, walking alongside. OK, you and I are going to have a different conversation. When we come back from the break. Um, detransitioning. These are individuals who um, began and in some places largely completed a transition from one uh, identified gender to another. And now they have they are working very diligently to restore their bodies to their biological reality. It is uh, it, it is a new uh, it's a new trauma um, in our culture. And we're going to talk about people detransitioning from. It's just so complicated. Detransitioning from having sought to make a gender transition. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner and I are going to continue our conversation about the Fifty Shades of Truth in the culture today and how we as Christians sort through some of that and enter into some very, very complex conversations. So, Peter, I was reading at DailySignal.com about this uh, young woman who spent um, two years transitioning. And so I just want to read a couple of sentences from this piece um, because she tells her own story. Two years ago, I was a healthy, beautiful girl headed uh, toward high school graduation. Before long, I turned into an overweight, pre-diabetic nightmare of a transgender man. Mm. And she says, I won't place the full blame on healthcare providers because I should have known better. But they sure helped me do a lot of harm to myself. Um, and they made a hefty buck doing it. Let's mm. talk about this individual because every single one of these stories is a personal story. It's a, you know, all all news is local. Um, but there's a there is this growing number of people who have bought into the delusion of transgenderism, and then um, the medical community in particular, but also the educational community has. Um, encouraged them, provided ways for them to harm themselves physically uh, to become what they are not. And then when they wake up and they and they want to become again who they really are, it's not only physically very, very difficult, it's emotionally and spiritually very difficult. And sometimes they have done things that are irreversible. Yeah, it's. I think if you're listening this morning, you want to catch this article. It's titled, I Spent a Year as a Trans Man and Doctors Failed Me at Every Turn. And I think these kinds of articles, Carmen, are so important to get the counterpoint to what is sort of the prevailing quote-unquote wisdom of the culture, which most of what you see in social media, most of what you see in the headlines and by sort of maybe some of the Justice Warrior movement is just all of the incredible stories of people who successfully transition and how happy they are. But that narrative is completely contradictory to what's actually happening. We're about three years into, I would say, the increasing embrace of gender transition. 
and attitudes already among young people are shifting from being more permissive for that decision to less so. And it's not because they suddenly found Jesus necessarily in these situations. It is simply because of what this story represents is that to transition your gender is not resolving the issues of anxiety, depression, turmoil, lack of identity, all of the things that might be motivating somebody to transition their gender, to try to find themselves, to try to uh, experience some peace of the soul. It's actually not helping. It is hurting. And this story that you and I are referencing really gets into raw detail. It is a very personal story, and I'm sure it's shared by many. In fact, they're saying that uh, in, in Great Britain right now, they're experiencing hundreds and hundreds of kids that are wanting to sort of detransition because this is a common circumstance. It, it, it's raw. It's difficult. Um, it gets you sort of into the hourly, daily look at what it means to take hormone suppression therapy, the byproduct of that, the side effects of that, uh, all of what's there. It's a really, it's a difficult and troubling story to read. And I think what I was most troubled by, Carmen, in this entire thing is where people are going. And you and I have chatted about this before, but in an understandable way, where people are going to get their credible information. And it's almost always into social media channels and places like Instagram, places like Facebook, where people are presenting not exactly the realities of life. They present maybe a sanitized or cleaned up version of it. And so people are going to these places and they hear a story of somebody who seems to be so happy as a result of the transition. And from that basis, they say, well, I'll be happy too. And it, it just speaks to, I think, and again, you and I have chatted about these things, that the, the church, for many reasons, seems to have lost its voice in a variety of ways in our culture. And what does it mean for the church to reestablish a credible voice? And what do we need to do with that? But uh, families too. Uh, and so... I know that in my classrooms these days, young people are looking for places that they can go for credible sources of authority to help them walk out the journey, but, uh, but they don't have those places. And unfortunately, social media is almost always that place, and it causes, in many cases, these kinds of decisions that are then very, very difficult. So, um, again, this article, and I, I want to commend it to people because it's first person. There's right. no way that Peter Kapsner and Carmen LeBurge can tell Cindy, Sydney Wright's story in the way that Sydney Wright tells her own story. I spent a year as a trans man. Doctors failed me at every turn. You can find it at DailySignal.com. Um, this, first of all, um, it's worth going to simply see the picture of what Sydney looked like right. as a 17-year-old senior in high school versus what she looks like after um, the drugs and the tattoos and the, um, you know, the, the the change of hair. I mean, you know, her hair will grow back out. Um, but the I want to, you know, I just want to acknowledge that there were these – she had these internal indications. It, it grieved her parents who, who are divorced, and that's a part of this story. It, 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 she, she felt hesitancy when, when seeking out a therapist because she had to have a letter to take to a doctor in order to get the drugs prescribed. Um, she felt – she actually felt this internal um, conflict when the doctor didn't even read the letter, simply put it in a drawer, prescribed her um, – uh, in injectable hormones and then, you know, told her to watch YouTube videos to figure out how to administer them to herself at home. Right. I mean, I, you know, there, there are definitely places along the way that in, her internal conscience was bristling against this. But every external influence in her life 
was saying, oh, no, go ahead. You know, you're a pretty girl. You're going to be a hot guy as well. Until her grandfather sat her down. Talk about the influence of her grandfather, because I think this is is really critical and important. If there's a person who trusts you and knows you love them, you can speak into their life on this issue. Yeah, I think for all the grandparents that are listening this morning, this is another example, and there are so many, aren't there, that a grandparent Mm -hmm. often is sort of in that one-step-removed place from the parent and somehow often has the ear of the grandchildren in ways that parents just simply can't. And this was an incredible example of that. As she said, the one person whose opinion she valued was that of her grandfather, and her grandfather stepped into the gap and with tears, he just asked her, please stop. And it it did cause her to actually think in ways that no other voice could. It was really interesting to see the power of a family member, not a parent, who probably had walked alongside of Sydney for a lifetime in some beautiful ways, as grandparents often do, and then was able to be there 17, 18, 19 years into the relationship to help uh, this this person maybe see it in a different way. So grandparents out there listening, there is such a vital role that can be played in the lives of grandkids. And uh, and his message was just, you know, super simple. Just please stop. And she did. Amazing. Cold turkey. you got to yeah. read the rest of her story. Um, Peter Kapsner, thank you so much. I wish we had time to talk about the NBA, but we could talk about that next week. That sounds great. Love hanging with you, Carmen. Thanks, man. We'll be right back. So much learning um, for us to do from people who are very different than us. I don't know if you are following the Ellen DeGeneres uh President Bush story. Uh, they sat together at a football game and, and Ellen received a lot of backlash for joking around with, smiling, and seeming to enjoy her time with a person who the world thinks she should be so opposed to in every way that they wouldn't be able to sit uh, in civility next to one another and enjoy a football game. Ellen DeGeneres' response to the social media outrage that she was enjoying herself Uh, sitting alongside the former president of the United States uh, watching a football game is absolutely right on target. She says, we're all different. I think we've forgotten that it's okay to all be different. Um, And she said, just because we don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean we're not going to be friends with them. Uh, If we talk about being kind to one another, we're actually talking about being kind to everyone, not just the people who agree with us. It's a great lesson in civility from an unlikely source. More next on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.